Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staver. It's our weekly reporter roundtable, where we catch up on the political news of last week and preview the week ahead. Joining me is Haley B. Miller, state government and politics reporter for the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. Welcome, Haley. Good morning. Laura Hancock, politics and policy reporter for Cleveland.com. Welcome back, Laura. Thanks for having me. And Joe Ingalls from the Ohio Public Radio Statehouse News Bureau. Welcome back, Joe. Great to be here. So, the man who used to be in charge of selling Ohio's alcohol has started developing rules for the sales of recreational marijuana. No word yet on when legal sales will start, but Jim Canapa says he has three guiding principles. Access, the black market, and making sure dispensaries don't all congregate in the same area. He spoke at the Columbus Metropolitan Club last week and made it pretty clear that if state lawmakers are going to weigh in, they need to do it sooner rather than later. What would be tragic is as we're rounding third base on the way to home and meeting these timelines, the legislature jumps in then. Haley, where do legislative efforts for recreational marijuana stand? Uh, They're pretty much at a stalemate between the House and Senate. The Senate, as listeners know, tried to pass some legislation in December to allow medical stores to sell recreational products sooner rather than later. The House decided not to pass that, decided not to really take any legislative action at the end of last year. And now we're hearing from some of the key lawmakers involved that they just kind of want to wait and see how the rulemaking process plays out. They think a lot of concerns about things like advertising toward advertising being geared toward children can be handled by the Division of Cannabis Control. They don't think legislative action is super necessary at this point. So, Joe, uh, Jim Canapa, like I said in the beginning, he started with liquor control. Now he's in cannabis control. What did he have to say about how his experience will guide his decision making? Well, he told people at the Metropolitan Club that he sees... um, the liquor situation, there's some parallels between it and marijuana. And he says that, uh, you know, he, he's going to um, make sure a lot of the things that apply to um, if you have alcohol, you know, age requirements and not, you know, advertising to kids and, you know, things like that. He wants those same things applied, which, of course, are in the law. So that will be good. But he's used to... Um, enforcing liquor law and he says he is definitely going to enforce once the they get the pot up and running he's going to enforce it yeah i'm old enough to remember joe camel and like the absolute vodka ads and all Mm -hmm. that kind of marketing that kind of appealed to teens Mm -hmm. that's all a no-go yeah that's all a no-go and actually it's written in the there are things written in the statute that could um actually make that happen where you couldn't do that but, um, you know, he wants to make sure that um, when it comes to kids that you don't have um, people who are underage running around getting pot. Now, you know what's interesting, Anna, is there was a guy on the panel with Jim Canepa at the Columbus Metropolitan Club, and he's a reporter. And his beat is the marijuana beat up in Michigan. And um, he said, you know, they really don't have a problem 
with places selling under to underage kids and that if that's happening it, it's happening secondary which you can't do much about that you know but um he's saying that the, as far as the actual marijuana distributors um and you know dispensaries they're not selling to the underage kids so uh that's something we we've heard ohio officials be very concerned about um but it may be something that there's not a whole lot of worry to be had anyway Laura, um, he also said there could be up to 300 marijuana dispensaries by September 2026. Now, they have 120 medical dispensaries. So Mm -hmm. how does he get it? Okay, so you have 120 medical dispensaries with 12 that are still in the process of trying to get their medical license. So that's 132 that would get dual, they would presumably, assuming all of them apply, and we have to remember in like Montana, 20% of medical marijuana dispensaries decided just to stay exclusively in the medical marijuana space. But you're talking, say, 132 dual licenses. Presumably, those ones are going to open up the fastest because all you would have to do is make sure you have enough parking, make sure you have enough staff, etc. So there's that. And then you have um, dispensaries, large-scale level one dispensaries can get up to three, I'm sorry, not dispensaries, cultivators, Large-scale cultivators can get up to three licenses apiece, including one on the premises of their grow operation. You have, I believe, like 22-ish large-scale growers. And then you have, so, you know, assuming you've got their, like... Is that like the pot version of farm to table? I guess so. (laughs) And then you have, as far as you have, like, small scale, which under the law, the new initiated statute, they're going to change... The grow rules and so then there'll be even a new category of growers but you have another 14 that will get one license they're smaller scale and they'll get one license at their place so that would be another 14 then you have 50 licenses that are going to go to communities that have been ver- adversely affected by the war on drugs so these licenses would not go to current dispensary owners or current marijuana business owners this is to go, and also it'd go like women, people with disabilities, things like that. Um, and so that would be 50 that the state would bid out. And those would presumably be, you know, further along. But in the first 24 months, that's what's getting set up is these dispensaries by the current marijuana business owners and then the 50 minority and, um, you know, social social equity ones. Then after the 24 months, that's where you get around, you know, 270. And then after the 24 months, you get um, the state gets to assess region by region whether there's a need for more. Interesting. Um, Haley, I actually want to play a clip from the Columbus Metropolitan Club event from the Harvest of Ohio CEO who has been operating uh, dispensaries under the state's medical marijuana program. I am hoping and I really think that Ohio (laughs) has a classy market of the medical marijuana. Um, Are things over-regulated? Yes, they were, and I think they will continue to be and will continue to fight for things like that, but I think it's really classy the way that we're doing it. And I am hoping that Ohio can be a model on how to do it right. Did she elaborate at all on like what classy means or how we can do this correctly? I think... From her point of view, she was focused really heavily on the social equity provision. Other states have attempted to address these barriers in the marijuana industry 
address the negative effects of marijuana enforcement by implementing social equity programs. I believe Illinois, for example, had one. But, you know, the Harvest CEO was saying that she doesn't really think other states have done this successfully in a way that has really closed those gaps and allowed you know, disenfranchised populations to flourish in this industry. She seems optimistic that Ohio's standards, the way that they're written now, will allow for that. And so it'll be interesting to see how that program rolls out. I think it's, um, you know, as written, it does have the potential to allow these people to really be involved in the market. And you said as written, which I think is important to tease out because the legislature, particularly Republicans in the legislature, have talked about changing this part because it issue one directed money towards a social equity and jobs program. But there's talk of turning that money into police training, correct? Right. And there's also some conversations kind of on the other end of the spectrum about whether there should be automatic expungements involved in this process as well. But yeah, I mean, the legislature still could change any of this. And I think people want to see the funding go to a bunch of different places. And you hear Republicans saying that as written right now, the statute is really just taking the marijuana program money and giving it to the marijuana program, which is true to some degree with things like the social equity program. But obviously, backers of that say that's a really important piece of the law that will fix some of the wrongs that previous marijuana law uh, addressed. One of the things that's really controversial about it is that um, people who could get potentially grants and loans under the social equity program would be people who, if they have a relative who has been imprisoned or convicted of a marijuana offense, they would be considered adversely affected. The legislature's irate about this. Like, you can't give money to the family of criminals or to criminals. Um, However, when I did talk to the backers of the initiated statute last year about this, they said that, you know, it costs a lot of money. You're sending money to your family for their commissary account you're taking care of their kids you're doing all sorts of stuff and so yeah these families have been adversely affected by the war on drugs and that they deserve to have a piece of the pie so joe um the permits for existing medical marijuana dispensaries uh should be available june 7th that's like when they can start applying Mm -hmm. uh the legislature also famously leaves probably around the same time, maybe June 30th, and they'll be gone almost through the election. So is it safe to say if we don't see legislative action by June, we're just not gonna? Well, I think uh, Jim Canepa has indicated that he is ready to go ahead and take this forward as an administrative thing, and he can do that. Um, It's just going to be more of how it was written versus how some of the lawmakers have talked that they would like to do it, okay? Um, the, this, the danger here is, as you said, you can start applying in June, and then uh, in September they'll start awarding, and uh, you're looking at, you know, the first coming online maybe before the end of the year next year uh, in, in, you know, some way. The thing is that if you Just got, in time for the election. <laughs> I don't know if it'll be that early, but uh, we, I don't know. Anyway, uh, they, when they come on... You know, when you get later in this process, though, there are a lot of things that are in that statute. There's dates. There's deadlines. And if the Ohio lawmakers, and this is what Jim Canepa said last week, if the Ohio lawmakers step in and try to do something too late, 
then you involve you involve like messing with some of these dates and deadlines and you could have a court battle and you could there could be all kinds of problems with it so uh you know if if the lawmakers are going to step in um you know can have to say and do it now the initiative statute does have language in there that says that if things if licenses and things aren't awarded by certain times you can file a private action basically a civil lawsuit saying against the state and this is basically to get the state moving because if you remember the rollout of medical marijuana i mean they were so late and i mean they acted like they were reinventing the wheel (coughs) even though several other states had medical marijuana programs and then you'd kind of challenge them with that and then they would say yeah but ohio law says blah 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 it took forever they were so late so i think that this this lawsuit provision is kind of not to punish the state but to kind of motivate them to keep it going And another piece of this, too, is part of the need to get them going is something that DeWine and lawmakers have articulated concerns about, which is this idea that we're in this interim period right now where you can legally consume marijuana, but there's no way to legally buy it in the state of Ohio. So you look at states like New York that I think took two years to really get marijuana stores up and running and during that time the black market really flourished and so i think there's a recognition that in the in issue two in the initiated statute that this process does take time to get licensees up and running but they want to do it as quickly as possible to sort of nip the black market in the bud no pun intended (laughs) Uh, i want to shift our conversation and talk about the death penalty while some state lawmakers are still pushing for execution by nitrogen gas, Governor Mike DeWine recently reaffirmed the state's de facto moratorium on the death penalty by delaying another sentence by several years. Is that right, Joe? Yes. Uh, yeah, he's, he's been doing this. Um, this is a kind of a pattern for him. Uh, he is... Um, he has I, I I don't know I don't want to put words in his mouth but he 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 doesn't seem to be um, wanting to enforce the death penalty um, everything has been put off um, and the dates have been put off and and part of it too is not just where Governor DeWine stands on the death penalty it's also this fact that um, it's been hard to get the drugs for the execution and they have been um, in short supply so and and actually. The lawmakers, some of them, are looking at um, using a different kind of, uh, uh, you know, gas to put, uh, like Alabama did. I think it was Alabama yeah. or Arkansas. Um, they they put, you know, the person uh, to death with um, a different kind of gas, and that's what um, some of the lawmakers are saying that Ohio needs to look like look at because of the shortage of these drugs right now. And Laura, when uh, the governor went to Cleveland.com for his sit down with you guys, uh, he, uh, well, actually, why don't you tell me what he said? Well, he says that he's not comfortable anymore with the death penalty because, you know, for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that you have a lot of, um, through all these DNA exoneration projects, you've had a lot of people who were on death row being proven that they didn't commit the actual crime that they were on death row for. So the governor is not comfortable with the death penalty anymore. Combine that with the fact that these drug companies say if their drugs are being used, if they find out that their drugs are being used in an execution, they are no longer selling to the state for the state health care program for the state prison program, for youth and custody program, like, you know, and the state buys lots of drugs. So basically, um, DeWine does not want to have executions. He's delayed them all. 
And he said that he does not want to have kind of a confrontation with the legislature. There are a lot of bipartisan legislators who are beyond the death penalty. They don't want to do it anymore. The appeals are too expensive. They don't want to do it. But um, there's still a lot of kind of law and justice Republicans in the legislature who would like to stay with the death penalty. And he just doesn't want to have that kind of confrontation. So he's just delaying it um, beyond his terms or his last term in office. We're going to take a break in just a moment. But first, I want to ask for your help. We're launching a new project next week that seeks to answer the question, why do younger Ohioans feel like they're never going to own a house? And we want to hear from you. If you're struggling to pay rent, student loans, groceries, let alone save for a down payment, email us at allsides at wosu.org and please put housing in the subject line. Coming up, we're discussing the Republican primary race for U.S. Senate and why betting on college sports just got a lot more restrictive. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. It's our weekly reporter roundtable, where we talk all things Ohio politics. Still with us is Haley B. Miller, state government and politics reporter for the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau, Laura Hancock, politics and policy reporter for Cleveland.com, and Joe Ingalls from the Ohio Public Radio State House News Bureau. We had a debate last week between Frank LaRose, Matt Dolan, and Bernie Moreno, the three men who want to take on Senator Sherrod Brown in November. Moreno is up in the latest polling, jumping more than 10 points since he secured the endorsement of Donald Trump. But, and this is a big but, nearly half of primary voters say they're still undecided. Haley, is it still anyone's race? I think so. I mean, you're starting to see more and more Republicans coalesce around Moreno and his campaign and his supporters are starting to get the message out there more that he's the Trump candidate, which is really important in a Republican primary. We saw that propel Vance to victory in 2022. So I think Moreno has an advantage, but a lot of voters, it seems like, really haven't been super tuned into this primary. It's not as crazy as 22 was. You don't have people like almost fist fighting on stage and so (laughs) and plus Ohio had two really big elections last year so the candidates have been on a pretty tight timeline to introduce themselves to voters ahead of a March primary you know they don't have the May primary like they usually do this year. Do you think uh, it's a little bit election fatigue Joe or maybe even a little like the Republican presidential primary is pretty much over. So it's not like there's some big contentious like presidential primary getting everybody to the polls. Right. Yeah. And I think if that was, uh, you know, if we had seen more contention there in the early races, 
Um, maybe that would be different. But I also think, as, as Haley says, I think people are tired. I mean, they continually are being bombarded with um, elections. And, you know, if, if you don't have a real strong, I think a lot of people, honestly, I've heard this from a lot of people, that they feel like it doesn't matter if you vote in the primary because it, you don't have a say in it anyway. You know, that it's it's a very difficult race to kind of, you know, whoever the primary picks, is that's who's going to be your person. So they just uh, feel like voting on candidates, when especially when it's not a general race, uh, they're not going to have much say in the process. And all three candidates, interestingly enough, have distanced themselves from the Alabama embryo ruling. Right, Laura? Yes. Um, so this is interesting. People who tend to do IVF are often high earning, white, and more often than not would vote Republican. And so this is a base of voter that I think Republicans are very concerned about alienating. And so you're seeing lots of Republicans, all three in the U.S. Senate race from Ohio, but just like across the country, you're seeing, I think, the National Republican Party put some pressure on candidates to make sure in competitive races that they have it on the record that they support IVF. Um, From the perspective, I remember one time I um, reported on an abortion bill where a, a, a fertility doctor from Cincinnati came up and said that a lot of these this one particular bill, actually, he said that they would have to close down their fertility clinic because they can't just keep storing all these like eggs and, you know, forever. They have to at some point destroy them. They can't just keep buying refrigeration and leasing extra space forever and ever. Amen. And so um, and so he said that it was just like the way the state was doing their abortion laws and proposing things, you know, it was going to make it impossible to do IVF. I posted it online and holy cow, all these pro-life people really came at me. And so definitely this is a concern to Republican voters. And if you're still trying to make up your mind in the Republican primary or just curious about the three men who are running, make sure to stay tuned after the reporter roundtable this hour, this hour. All sides sat down with all three Republican candidates and will be airing those interviews starting at 11. Also, early voting is now officially underway, so sorry, folks, it is too late to register for the March primary if you are going to vote. Um, is there any sense of turnout so far, or is it just too early? I think it's early. I mean, honestly, I'm not really checking it that much because typically a primary you don't have the the voting early and then like especially the first few days especially um, with like 40 percent of right. republicans undecided right i think we're going to see the numbers on the I, you know march you know i think in march you'll start to see more early voting come in it is interesting though because we're starting to see republicans nationally This has kind of always been the case in Ohio, but especially nationally say that, you know, early voting's great. You know, we got to bank those votes early. I think actually bank the vote is the RNC's motto this time around. And obviously that's a stark contrast to 2020 when, you know, then President Trump was staunchly opposed to early voting. That was kind of at the center of a lot of his claims about voter fraud. So that dynamic is certainly interesting to see now. You have, um, I think, like, J.D. Vance said last week that he voted early. So uh, the the tone has definitely shifted around early voting for Republicans. And speaking of the upcoming elections, the threat of AI-generated images, videos, even voice recordings has never really been more real. 
And there's a Democratic lawmaker here in the state house who wants to make sure that those who create these kinds of deep fakes can be held civilly liable for any damage they cause. Right, Laura? So there's three or there's two bills. One is a dual sponsored Democratic and Republican bill that would actually criminalize deep fakes. And then there's another one that is just a Republican sponsor that would allow people to file like a lawsuit civil action. So you have... um, Kind of, and the the one that is not criminalizing is much more like you can use, you know, if you want to paint a, you know, devil's tail onto a picture of somebody for like spoofing and irony and stuff like that. There is where it's car- obviously fake. Yeah, well, there's a carve out for kind of like First Amendment expression. The other one, the question is like, are memes going to be criminalized? Are basic First Amendment? I mean, it's one thing to say to do a robocall and say, "Hi, I'm Joe Biden. Don't vote in this election." You know, that would maybe be wrong or unethical. But you know, if it's another where you're just, you know. You know, putting a picture of somebody, you know, and putting some like expression under them, would that be considered deep fake? And that would that get you to go to jail? You know, the one that is the criminal one you on the first offense, you get a misdemeanor on the second offense is a felony. So serious charge. Mm hmm. Yeah, what's interesting about this to me is how it might apply to campaigns that choose to use AI. So, for example, last October, New York City Mayor Eric Adams sent a bunch of robocalls to voters in languages he doesn't speak. They basically used AI to create his voice and send these robocalls out. Now, it was the campaign itself using AI, and I have no idea if that would get flagged under these laws, but it's such an interesting space. I believe one of the bills says that you would just have to say, like, this is AI. You yeah. know, kind of like the smoothies. which defeats the purpose of like the Spanish language robocall. Well, if you could do it really fast, like you know, oh, at the end, yeah. toys are not to be swallowed by kids, and don't smoke cigarettes. You know, like the really <laughs> fast thing at the end. I think there was, and this isn't very helpful because I don't remember which group, but there was a pretty big national group that generated a TV ad or an online ad using AI, and they had that disclosure in there, but it was really like dramatic footage of you know what the country could look like and so it it will be interesting to see how these images are used and even if they have these disclaimers I think there's a question of like how closely are people reading the fine print on their tv or when they see an ad on facebook yeah that makes me you know I kind of feel like tv ads political ads are already like movie trailers so yeah yeah I've been seeing some ads that are way out there and it's like Whoa, I, I don't think it's AI. I think it's just bad editing. But, um, you know, <laughs> people, I, seriously, you know, if you're going to vote, um, look at your candidates and see where they stand on issues. Don't look at these stupid ads because some of them, you know, are, are way out there and very incorrect. So all prop bets are off. The Ohio Casino Commission has banned sports betting companies from taking bets on how college athletes perform. So that means no betting on how many points like Caitlin Clark scores or how many yards a ride receiver gets, right? You can, Joe, can you explain why the commission decided to put an end to prop bets for college sports? Yeah, this is something that's actually near and dear to my husband's heart because he's a former uh, athletic administrator from college and you know, this whole NIL thing has just uh, kind of threw everything for a loop and um, all the betting that goes along, you know, with the sports betting is um, making it harder for these athletes. I mean, the thing is that, you know, athletes like an Ohio State, they always had 
you know, people who would, fans who would kind of get bent out of shape if they didn't win this game or that game. But now when there's money involved, it takes it to an all new level. And the problem is you have uh, an athlete who's, who's doing, you know, their very best and, but they don't fall within a range of whatever you're supposed to vet to win or, or they don't win or they lose or, or they whatever. Miss the kick or whatever. And they miss something. And then, you know, all these uh, people who are losing money, it gives them more anger, more reason to go after them. And it threatens the safety of athletes. And, uh, you know, anything can be bad. But when you throw money into it, it, it often makes it worse. And I think that's what they've seen in this case. And that's why... You're seeing them come down to prop bets, you know, wanting to be getting rid of those. So operators have until March 1st to comply. And the executive director of the Ohio Casino Control Commission has suggested that bettors who threaten college athletes over social media could be barred from gambling in the state. So, Laura, it sounds like they're taking this pretty seriously. Yeah, um, I don't know if there have been any examples in Ohio, but apparently there have been examples outside. Um, I think the University of Dayton had some students who were super harassed. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's not... Yeah. At least that's not what I mean. They're freaking college students. Be mad you know? that they like dropped the pass or threw the interception, but like don't well, go not yell pro- at them on social media. They're not professional athletes. They're not making millions upon and even millions if they of dollars. Were, like what the? I'm not going to swear. That's yeah. not going to happen. But like it's just it's just a game. <laughs> yes. Um. So, Laura, actually, uh, the next question is also for you. So. Uh, can you fill us in on what happened when Senator Michael Rooley thought he saw someone on his Columbiana County property? Okay, so this is actually really interesting. <laughs> okay, so this all happened late November. And um, two people were either on his property. They were teenagers, a teenage boy and his girlfriend. And he was either on Michael Rooley's property, according to Michael Rooley, or he was on his uncle's property adjacent and this is a lot of land. This is not like a suburban lot. Right. And yeah, I looked up the address and yeah, he's out in the country and there was a mention in the police report because I did see the police report and it said that they've had other trespassers or alleged trespassers in the past. And I was like, where the heck do they live? And so then I got the address and looked it up. Yeah, they're out in the country, Columbiana County. Okay. So, um, so anyway, so he said it was nighttime and he was like, who's out there? Or, you know, he said something like that. And then, um, you know, obviously nobody responded. And so he fired one shot. He says he fired into the ground. The um, teenager said he fired it at him. Okay. So then several hours later, he goes with his family members to collect his tree stand and other equipment. The to... teenagers do. Yes. Okay. The teenager. So they'd been hunting on the uncle's property. Mm-hmm. I believe it was bow hunting, actually. Okay. And that's the other thing is really claimed he had a gun. And the teenager said, yeah, I had a gun, but it was in my truck. And I wasn't in like near my truck at the time. Whatever. And so... At that time, Kelly Rooley, Michael Rooley's, and by the way, Michael Rooley is running for Congress. So that's kind of why this rises to like a new level besides, you know, a state legislator. Um, so she basically fires several shots. She says she fired them, I think, into the air of the ground. Um, the family says that they were fired at... And so police were involved, wildlife officers were involved, a special prosecutor was called to look into the issue. Um, What the special prosecutor determined is that the shots were not fired at the people, but they never collected any bullets. They believe that the kid was trespassed, uh, trespassing, but the kid was never charged. 
and um, you know, really was never charged. So kind of a bizarre thing. And my Michael really told our reporter at cleveland.com, like, it's my God given right to defend my property or something along those lines, something with God given. I remember I saw it. And which is like, you know, totally like at a play into the Republican gun people. Um, then, you know, but then there's going to be some local support for this family because like, if he truly wasn't trespassing, you have the right to go hunting on you know your uncle's land and not get shot at. So kind of a strange story. Yeah. So my in-laws live out in the country on like 100 acres and they kind of back up to people. And like there are multiple families that kind of hunt on those edges and stuff, sometimes on the edge of like a cornfield or a soybean field because the deer will come and eat it. And that's a really easy place to pop them. And so I do kind of wonder, even if the kid was trespassing, I wonder if it was like accidental, like he got a couple feet under Ruli's property trying to collect his stuff. And it wasn't or a lot of times like if you shoot a deer, it'll run onto the neighbor's property and you'll track it that way. And who really knows, like, I mean, how many people really know where their property line really is? I mean, I guess you would in your You backyard. have a sense, but when right. you have a bunch of acreage, yeah, it's kind of, there's that, like, Things almost move like. a little bit. And, I mean, it's not always a straight line. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a, definitely a strange story. Uh, Haley, I want to ask about Ohio's Supreme Court elections. They're going to shape how the abortion rights amendments get interpreted going forward. Uh, so who's on the ballot? Who's been endorsed? What what should we know about this? Yeah. So before we get to the general election cycle, which I think is going to be very interesting and expensive and all of that jazz, um, there's a primary in March for the Democratic nominees in one of the races. It's between Lisa Forbes and Terry Jamison. They're both appeals court judges. Uh, Jamison ran and lost in another Ohio Supreme Court race in 2022. Uh, Ohio Democratic Party has endorsed Lisa Forbes. So voters, the winner of that election will take on Republican Dan Hawkins for an open seat in November. And then there are two other incumbent Democrats running to defend their seats. So Democrats are really, really hoping they can flip the court this year with these three seats open. They see an opportunity. Um, The court's been in Republican control for like several decades at this point. And, you know, it is a pivotal time because while the six week ban in Ohio is likely to be declared unconstitutional soon. There are still a lot of other abortion laws on the books that like abortion rights advocates are just going to kind of tackle one by one to see what does and does not hold up against the new amendment. And a lot of those conversations are going to be in the state Supreme Court. So in that Democratic primary, um, Lisa Forbes, who's the one who's actually endorsed by her um, party, she is the one who raised $145 last year, which didn't even cover her $150 filing fee. And um, and then the then Terry Jamison, who's challenging, she raised $3,800. So not a lot either, but still no, more. It's I mean, it's both of them. It's like, come on, you guys need to start acting like you're serious about wanting to win these races. 
So I kind of, you know, challenged the party. I was like, are you guys just only focused on the shared brown race? And, you know, do you guys have the bandwidth to be able to handle, you know, Supreme Court? Oh, we'll be able to handle it. And it's like, well, why is it that already the Ohio Republican Party has distributed $100,000 to Joe Dieters? Because they have a special judicial fund. And like you guys, you know, you have a person who you've endorsed who hasn't even raised enough to pay for her own filing fees. Anyway, so I don't know. I mean, I think at this point, the part like the sitting two sitting Democratic justices, Melody Stewart and Michael Donnelly, they are going to have to fight to keep their seats. I think there's a potential for the conservatives to get an even bigger majority. Yeah, totally to flip. And so um, so I think that's kind of probably realistically where the fight is going to be. I don't know if really the Democrats are going to be able to like flip existing you know, Republican seats. Coming up, we're talking about college loans and fracking underneath state parks. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Sides Weekly Reporter Roundtable. I'm your host, Anna Staber. We're getting you caught up on all things Ohio politics this hour. And still with us is Haley B. Miller, state government and politics reporter for the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau, Laura Hancock, politics and policy reporter for Cleveland.com, and Joe Ingalls from the Ohio Public Radio State House News Bureau. So right now, or in a, very soon, the Ohio Oil and Gas Land Management Commission is scheduled to have a meeting where we could possibly find out who will win the contracts to frack underneath our state parks and wildlife areas. But the Environmental Council filed a motion last week to stop this meeting. Haley, it doesn't seem like that worked. No, I mean, the meeting is still, you know, very much underway right now. But opponents of fracking and state parks in general have just really been frustrated with this entire process. There was a whole to-do last year about letters that were sort of fraudulently submitted in support of fracking under state parks that Cleveland.com reported on at the time. And there's just not a lot of transparency in this process. They've criticized a state law that just that um, keep secret the companies that are right because all these companies these bids. Have, there's multiple companies maybe that bid on say Salt Fork State Park but we'll only know who the winner is potentially today right so just not a lot of transparency so advocates tried to stop this hearing from going forward today but you know they've been despite the pretty organized opposition to this they've been blocked pretty much the entire way and. 
we're kind of doing rapid fire in our sexy, but uh, I want to talk about college loans. So more than 7,000 Ohioans are expected to benefit from President Biden's latest round of student loan forgiveness. What do we know about the $1.2 billion plan? Well, we know that these are loans that uh, people have been paying on for quite some time, and this would uh, basically uh, make the period of time that they have to pay on those loans much shorter. And uh, President Biden actually sent an email to all of the people who are getting their loans forgiven saying, hey, uh, you're welcome. I'm forgiving your loan so that they don't forget. So if you didn't get one of those emails, you are not one of those people. (laughs) Exactly. But, you know, uh, these are loans that, that are under the SAVE program. Uh, which the SAVE program is one of these special things to make loans more affordable for people. Um, and the loans had to be $12,000 or less total, which feels like pretty low for a student loan. It is. And, and it, if, it, if it was over that, uh, then, then it takes they have to pay on it longer. That's the, the trade-off there. The Biden administration's argument for that is based on research and data that they've seen, they say that people who have taken out $12,000 or less are more likely to be community college students, more likely to have come from low-income households, things like that. So they're really trying to do student loan forgiveness where they can ever since the U.S. Supreme Court struck down kind of broader-based forgiveness. So this particular program that was announced last week affects about 7,500 Ohioans right now, and that number could increase as more people enroll in the SAFE plan, for example. So Democratic leaders in the House and Senate won a federal investigation into what happened with the energy bill at the heart of the corruption scandal that sent Larry Householder to prison. Um, House Minority Leader Allison Russo said the Republican supermajority has refused to fully investigate the scandal. So, Laura, what are they what are they asking for here? What what basically what do they want? Because Householder and Borges are in prison. Randazzo has been indicted. The guys from First Energy are now indicted. I mean, I know that they're not happy that Ohio ratepayers are supporting um they're supporting two coal plants, one in Indiana, one in Ohio. So you can't even say they're supporting all Ohio jobs because they're supporting Ohio- Indiana workers. So that's one thing. I think some of them wouldn't be too disappointed if they saw people higher up in the DeWine administration investigated, besides Sam Randazzo, because um, there's been you know, a lot of questions. Governor DeWine has remained um consistent in saying that he didn't know that Sam Randazzo received like a $4 million payment shortly before taking the job as head of the PUCO. Um, you know, then there's questions about whether he, because one of the, DeWine's former chief of staff did know about that payment. And so did she tell him and he just like hired this guy anyway? Did Lieutenant Governor John Husted, uh Governor Wannabe, did he know? What did he know? When did he know? So anyway, so I think that, you know, the Dems would like to keep this issue on the minds of Ohio voters. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a political element here, too, because, you know, uh, you're going into an election in November. And if you have these um, questions about all this money and, and remember, ratepayers are still paying a fee 
uh, because of House Bill 6. The, the fee that they're paying for these um, energy plants that Laura was talking about is still on the bills. So you can say, you know, politically, there's, you know, you're paying voter, you're paying this fee, and there was all this corruption, and they still haven't gotten to the bottom of it. And the Democrats are kind of banking on that. But the thing with House Bill 6 is um, Nan Whaley, the former Democratic governor uh, candidate, <clears throat> had tried to, um, uh, you know, been make this an issue when she ran. And House Bill 6 is extremely complicated. It's not an easy thing it's to understand. It's not a 30-second ad. No, it's not a 30-second ad. And I think the, the Democrats are trying to, um, you know, make it so that they put these bills up, nothing happens, and then, uh, you know, they can take another swipe at, at uh, you know, the fact that, you know, structurally, uh, not there's there hasn't been changes you know we still have the PUCO like it always was um, and there's been a lot of things that really haven't changed um, in light of House Bill 6 and I, I think that they're trying to bring that up so that voters can can maybe understand it a little bit better too. Haley I get the sense too that they're trying to remind voters that there hasn't been any legal changes, right? It's just as easy to hide dark money as it once was. It's like uh, Joe was saying, it's the PUCO hasn't changed. There's a lot of bills in the state house that would either repeal all the rest of HB6 that would change the way campaign finance works, but they don't they don't go anywhere, do they? They do not, and it's interesting because you know, I've even heard from Senate President Matt Huffman before saying that he thinks there are problems with some of the campaign finance rules as it relates to dark money, but you don't see him championing any sort of effort to change those. And so it's a lot of status quo. And I think to some extent that's continued because Republicans do have a supermajority in each chamber and at the end of the day, Republicans and Democrats benefit from the campaign finance system as it is. You know, there are a lot of critics of how money in politics works, but everyone gets a piece of the pie to some extent at the end of the day. Laura, I want to talk about the State Board of Education. They're considering hiking the license renewal fees for educators uh, as a way to balance their budget. Can you explain what's going on here? Oh, gosh. Okay, so in the last <laughs> two-year state budget, big changes for education. They basically disbanded what was formerly known as the Ohio Department of Education. In its place, they created a K-12 agency called the Department of Education and Workforce, also known as DO. Um, they gave all the education bucks to DO. The State Board of Education is an agency with about an eight, 80 employees and these members of the state board. They Who are elected. Some are elected and some are governor appointed. Yeah, it's a combo. And um, they just are in charge. Their their duties are very narrow now. Most of the education decisions are made by due. But they do like um, teacher disciplinary actions. They do licensing. They do school district territory transfers. They award teacher of the year, (sighs) things like that. Um, They didn't get funds. And the... There was a state senator, Andy Brenner, who told them, well, don't worry. It was an oversight. We'll take care of this. However, now they're all singing the tune. You need to hike up your teaching fees. The teaching fees haven't increased for like 
15 years. And so I think there is kind of a case to be made that they can increase them. However, they're very concerned. It's not like a law firm where they're going to pay your bar dues. You know, these teachers are paying their licensing and their renewal of their licenses out of their own money. And so there is a concern that if they make it, you know, 500 a year or whatever, if they raise it, it's in the 200 range, I believe right now. If they increase it crazy it's just going to be one more barrier to getting into education at a time when there are some the the teacher shortage is kind of a complex thing but you know there are localized shortages of teachers in certain areas especially like the sciences special ed things like that and so there is a question about whether you know the legislature the last time i talked to senator brenner he's the lawmaker who's over the senate's k-12 committee he said that yeah they'll provide some money the the school board passed a resolution asking the legislature for 10 million dollars there's no way they're gonna get that i'm pretty guaranteed the legislature's saying no and also there are but short- to be fair 10 million in the context of an 80 billion dollar budget it's not like an astronomical amount of money yeah and also okay so their but their deficit though is only four million that's kind of the situation now the way they get to 10 million is if you guys remember during the pandemic everything was shut down and there was a brief kind of like situation where the state wasn't getting any revenues and so they halted they froze new hiring they froze travel they froze all sorts of stuff to save money and the governor did take some money from the teacher licensing fund to the tune of 10 million dollars that's where they get that fund to keep the state going so they feel like the state owes them that money you know so um however you know this is just one of many blows that the State Board of Education, which um, in November of 2022 got three new Democrats elected. And so I think the legislature, um, you know, when that happened, the legislature's been trying to kind of claw back control over education policy for decades. But when those Democrats got elected, holy cow, did that happen in short order? Um, and so I think, you know, this is just one more blow to the State Board of Education. Yeah, the State Board of Education is sort of like a why it's such an interesting topic to me, which is just because you're right. They they were created by a constitutional amendment uh, by the vote of the people. And now and look, I'm not saying that teacher licensure is not important, like how we revoke and like repeal licenses. That's very important, especially when you're dealing with the education of children. But yeah, it's such a. I'm going to be so curious to see what happens to the yeah, board because, going forward. Right. There's litigation over this. And so it'll be interesting. It'll inevitably be appealed to the Ohio Supreme Court. Now, will they just rubber stamp what the Republicans did in the legislature, which Governor DeWine supported? Because Dew is headed by a director who is the member of Governor DeWine's cabinet. So Governor DeWine now gets personal control over education. So, you know, there's lots of incentives to control education. So, you know, was it this a violation of the spirit of the constitutional amendment? It's very interesting. If you look back in like the 30s and 40s, so like 1930s and 40s, the like the governor would say, oh, the Department of Education needs to hire this person from this county because I need votes down there. You know, it was very, <laughs> very politicized. And so that's kind of why the voters passed this constitutional amendment in 1953. That was Laura Hancock, State House reporter for Cleveland.com. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And thanks to Joe Ingalls, a reporter at the Ohio Public Radio State House News Bureau. Thanks for having me. And Haley B. Miller, a political reporter for USA Today Network, Ohio Bureau. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And that'll do it for this hour of All Sides on 89.7 NPR News.